if you have your Bible with me, with me, if you have your Bible with you, man, that's not a good sign. If you have your Bible with you, open to Exodus chapter 13. We are going to start in at Exodus 13, 17. We'll skip a few verses here or there as we read through chapter 14. This is the climactic event in the Exodus proper where God brings his people out of their slavery into freedom, out of old life into new life. Uh, Last week we talked about the Passover and the execution of God's judgment on Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and the judgment which uh, was on the one hand death to the Egyptians but life to God's people because of the substitutionary effect of the sacrificial lamb. Listen now as we read Exodus 13 verse 17. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines even though it was near for God said The people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal-Zephon, opposite it, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Skip down with me now to verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. 
As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen." The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided." The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And then in case you got lost in all the details and the information... Here's the main point of everything that's just been relayed to us in this account. Verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, even as we have sung, we ask that you would give us hearts to acknowledge the truth of the matter that we are helpless. That were it not for your strong hand reaching down and saving us, we would be buried in our sin and the judgment that we deserve. We ask, Father, that as we read this portion of your word, as we consider the things that you did to redeem your people Israel, from the power of the Egyptians, that you would cause us to see more clearly how a greater act of deliverance and salvation has been accomplished through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Exodus 13, 17 through 14, 31, the big idea that we're going to work off of or that you want to try to take to heart in all of this is, is pretty basic and pretty simple. We take it from the last two verses of chapter 14 that's, that give a summary statement for all of this. 
And we'll just sort of paraphrase or shorten it, condense it by saying that the point of this passage is that the Lord saves his people by his great power. And you want to emphasize the Lord. The Lord saves his people by his great power. And so in trying to flesh that out or support that kind of concept or statement from this passage, here are three things that we're going to consider. Number one, that in this work of salvation, that the Lord himself leads his people to salvation. Number two, the Lord alone accomplishes salvation. And number three, the Lord's salvation calls for devotion and trust. Number one, the Lord himself leads his people to salvation. Number two, the Lord, accomplish, the Lord alone accomplishes salvation. And number three, the Lord's salvation calls for devotion and trust. Let me go ahead and let you know up front where, uh, where I am or what I see, what we ought to see when we consider this passage. Am I getting feedback from one of the monitors here? If I am, you can, you can just cut it, Doug, and I, I don't care about, care about hearing myself. Okay, one, one of the things that we ought to consider is, as Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, that the things that we have in the Old Testament are written for our instruction and for our example. I take it, based on what we see later on in the New Testament, that what we have going on here in Exodus is intended for us to have some sort of a working analogy for what God does in his work of salvation in general. That this is an Old Testament model of redemption that God executes in a greater, clearer way in the New Testament. Let me, give you, let me give you two pretty distinct reasons why I think that's the case. Number one, in Luke's account of the transfiguration, you don't need to turn there right now, in Luke chapter 9, Luke records how Jesus is uh, beginning to, uh, his clothes and his appearance are beginning to glow. And that he is seen conversing with Elijah and with Moses on the mountain. And as he's speaking with Moses and Elijah on the mountain, Luke says that he is discussing with them the departure that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But the word that's used there for departure is the Greek word exodos. It's, it's, it's fine to translate it as departure, but it seems like Luke is intending for us to understand that what Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem in his death and resurrection is itself the ultimate exodus event where God, through his servant, Jesus, the true and better Moses, leads his people out of their captivity and bondage to sin leads them out in freedom from the powers that bound them into new life and freedom. So it views the crucifixion and the resurrection, even the ascension, as being part of this great Exodus event. But then there's another incident that comes later towards the end of the New Testament in Revelation chapter 15, where John tells us that after the seven angels who have the seven last plagues, you, you hear Egypt language, Exodus language in there, the plagues that God pours out on the earth, that when that has run its course, that the saints, that God's people, 
take up and sing the song of Moses, which seems to be an allusion to Exodus 15, the song that the Israelites sing in response to the Lord's salvation and deliverance. All right, now that's a long way to simply say this. I would encourage you in your own reading, in your own meditation and reflection, in the time that we have this morning or even on your own, to consider that one of the reasons that we have been given this passage is so that we can get a clearer picture of what is involved when God, through His servant Jesus Christ, delivers us, His people, from sin and from slavery. That we are experiencing now, we're experiencing that for you now, but that also there's a way in which the Exodus event that we're reading about here also looks ahead to another aspect of that exodus or deliverance when we are once and for all finally delivered from all of the hostile powers, not that hold us, but that threaten us. That there's coming a day when we, like the Israelites, will be able to say, we do not see our enemy, we see no hostile powers anymore. That's what God is doing. How does he do it? Number one, the Lord accomplishes this salvation for his people first by leading them to salvation. One of the things that we need to see first and foremost, it, it, I don't know, if you could put it in neon lights, this ought to be in neon lights. We're told that when the people come out of Egypt, or as the people are making their way out, that God decides that he's not going to lead them along the way of the Philistines, which, by the way, would have been the most direct route from where they were in Egypt into Canaan. It essentially would have followed the coastline up to Canaan. But he says, I'm not going to do that because there are outposts along the way. They'll experience conflict. They'll be discouraged. They might even think about going back to life in Egypt and slavery. No, we're going to do it a different way. That's important. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the real significance of what happens in the opening of this episode is what's said in verse 21. We're told in verse 17 that God is leading the people, but look at the way that he leads them in verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The significance of this statement is that God is giving himself to his people in a way that he never gave himself even to the patriarchs, right? If you think about back to Genesis 28, when Jacob is having to run from his brother Esau, and God appears to him in the night and says, surely I am with you and I will bring you back to this land. Jacob had to trust that God was with him sight unseen. He did not have a visible manifestation of God's presence with him, leading him from place to place. For the first time in a decisively consistent long-term way, 
God is not only leading his people, but he is leading them with his presence being actively and visibly known. It is as if to say that one of the ways that we know that salvation is being brought to us is if we have God. If you have God, you have salvation. If you have salvation, you have God. But here's the thing. Because this is something of an analogy we said, an Old Testament analogy of how God works in salvation for his people even in this present time, I read a passage like this and I say, huh, must have been nice. I wish I could get a little bit of that extra blessing, that extra privilege. Who wouldn't want to see a visible manifestation of God walking with you as you go out to your car to head to work that day? Who wouldn't want to see God finger or point to, is it door A that I walk through or door B that I walk through? Who, who wouldn't want that? I would. I'm jealous. I'm envious. But hold your place here and go with me to Isaiah chapter 63. And pick up with me in Isaiah 63, verse 11. Listen to how God sheds additional light on the way that he led and directed his people. Isaiah 63, verse 11. We're going to read verses 11 through 14. Then his people remembered the days of old, of Moses, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? That's referring to the Red Sea, which we'll read about in a moment. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness? They did not stumble, and the cattle or as the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. More specifically, in Isaiah's telling, who led Israel in the Exodus and in through the wilderness? Don't just say God, that, that's true. The Spirit, His Holy Spirit, led them out of Egypt, through the sea, and into the promised land. That means that when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, because unless I go back to my Father, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will not come. He is the one who was with you and will be in you. Do you understand? Do you see in making that connection that the same God who led Israel 
out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt is the same God, and in fact, we could even say more specifically, is the same person of God that leads us today. He led his people in the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. He leads his people in a special way, and dare we say it, in an even more special way than he led his people here in Exodus by the Holy Spirit that he has given to indwell us now. So that Paul can say in Romans 8, 14, that everyone who is led by the Spirit are sons of God. Listen, here's what you need to know, believer. If you have been united to Christ through His work of salvation at the cross and in His resurrection as one of the unbelievable, inconceivable gifts that you have been given, you have been given the very presence of God dwelling within you who has promised you and assured you that He Himself will guide you every step of the way. Not just into your initial phase of salvation where you break free from sin. He led you to that. But just as His Spirit was put within the midst of Israel to lead them out of Egypt through the wilderness and safely home, His Spirit resting and residing in you is your guarantee that He's going to do the exact same thing for you. You will not be lost. You will not be defeated. You will not be conquered. You will not be destroyed. Because God dwells in you and God by His Spirit dwells in our midst to see to it that we are safely led from step by step in every stage of our redemption until we finally make it home safe and secure in the end. Every time a Christian dies, whether young or old, even in grief, even in sorrow, because of the security that we have through the Holy Spirit, we can say, by faith, there's another one safely home. God has given to us a greater gift than what he gave to his people in the Old Testament. He has given us himself. He has poured out his spirit into our hearts, Paul tells us in Romans 5, so that we can know the confidence and the assurance of our hope. Let me make two other observations just very briefly about the way that God leads his people to their salvation. We ought to say this very quickly, that there are two elements in which God does this. Number one, he leads them for their good, and he leads them for his glory. All right, the goodness part is seen in the very opening verse when the Lord is leading them out of Egypt, and he says, if I take them the short, direct way, which would make sense, I know that that's not going to be good for these people. 
So instead of taking them the short, direct way, he takes them the long, meandering, roundabout, nonsensical way. Not because he's teasing them, but because he loves them. And we're also told that the reason that he does this not only is for their good, but so that as it looks to the natural eye, to God's enemies, as it looks like his people are wandering aimlessly, not with the guidance and direction of the Lord, Pharaoh and the army and the Egyptians will say, they're aimless. They're ours. And God uses that to draw the enemy in so that he can destroy them once and for all. God leads his people for their good and for his glory. Listen, you need to claim this every day. I don't mean name it and claim it like you're making up promises or guarantees. I mean, you claim this because this is part of who God is in his nature and character, who he's revealed himself to be. Because the reality is, is that for all the certainty and assurance that he gives us in his word and by the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit, that he is going to lead us safely home, the fact of the matter is that oftentimes this path that he leads us on, whether corporately or individually, does not make much sense. It seems, more often than not, very slow and tedious. It seems aimless and wandering. Anyone ever felt that in their Christian life? What is happening? What am I doing here? It's not wasted time. God has not taken a break to leave you to try to figure out the next step. You may not understand it. We may not see it. We, not, we may not be able to connect the dots because of how randomly situated they seem to be, but the assurance that we have is that because God is the one that is leading us, he never leads us in any direction or into any place that is ultimately not for our good and for his glory. But here's the additional catch. There always has to be a catch. The fact of the matter is, is that oftentimes what is good for me and what brings glory to God is not comfortable. This is point number two. The Lord alone accomplishes salvation. So the Lord is leading his people in such a way to protect them from future harm, whether they recognize it or not. The Lord is leading them in such a way that he is enticing the enemy to come and attack them so that he can once and for all decisively destroy the enemy for the good and security of his people. He's leading them for their good and for his glory. He's going to be honored through all of this. Listen, though, as this begins to unfold, listen, skip down to 14 verse 10. Listen to how the people respond as the Lord has led them to this point. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. 
So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. I don't know how, in, how sincere or genuine that crying out was because in the very next verse, they're not exactly responding with a lot of good faith and confidence. Verse 11, they say to Moses, what, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you got to bring us out here to die? And by the end of it, they're so fearful and frustrated with where they find themselves that they say it would have been better for us if we had remained slaves than to have been brought out into freedom. Moses' response is not one in which he tries to placate or tries to give them a false sense of assurance or comfort. He does not say, guys, I know that it looks bad, but don't worry. I've got this figured out. We had this all in the plans from the very beginning. He doesn't say that at all. Moses' response essentially acknowledges the fact that from a human perspective, if all they have to depend on is themselves, they're dead. But although they appear to be good as dead, Moses says, that's no reason to get all worked up. Verse 13, Moses says to the people, don't be afraid. Stand and see, stand and watch the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. God leads his people to a dead end. He leads his people to a place where they have no more room to move, where they are forced to stand still, trapped, without any resources, without any ability to defend or deliver themselves. He does it on purpose so that they will know that salvation is from the Lord. It is good for God's people to know that. Because if God's people do not know and believe that salvation is from the Lord and the Lord only, that only the Lord can save His people, we are too happy and too in the habit of trying to save ourselves. And the only result of trying to save yourself is certain death. You stand, you watch, you see what God has done so that by the end, you will not say, God and me did this. You will say, the Lord is my salvation. The Lord is trying to teach His people this over and over and over again in Scripture. It is so hard for us to be able to grasp hold of that concept in such a way that we can rest in the Lord's goodness and in His wisdom. 
when the ultimate act of deliverance comes, in the person of Jesus Christ, he delivers his act of deliverance in the crucifixion at the cross. What are God's people doing while God is accomplishing salvation for his people in the death of his son on the cross? Luke 23:35 says, and the people stood by looking on. They're not doing anything to save themselves. They can't do anything to save themselves. But they can stand and they can see their salvation happening right before their eyes. They can see that what they cannot accomplish, God does for them. And over and over and over again, we're told in the Scriptures that the reason that God brings us to salvation through the apparent foolishness and weakness of the cross of Christ is so that we will know that the only reason that God has a people redeemed for Himself is because God alone saves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24, the Jews ask for signs. They want to see big shows of power. Greeks look for wisdom. They want something sophisticated and intricately planned out, according to their wisdom at least. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen, let me try to, to bring this home in, in two ways. One, for those of you who are here who are Christians, who have placed your, your faith in Christ, you're trusting Him to bring you home. Paul elsewhere says in 2 Corinthians that at one point we had the sentence of death on us so that we would put our hope not in ourselves, but in God who raises from the dead. If you find yourself in a place that you see is, or that you interpret to be a dead-end, no-win scenario, but by faith and obedience, you have no other explanation than that God is the one who put you here, you can be confident that your Father is watching over you and that He will safely lead you home. If you do not know Christ as your Redeemer, the one who saves you through His death and resurrection, let me say a word to you and also to other Christians who are hearing this. One of the worst things that you can do when you begin to despair of your sin or your life or you begin to find yourself hopeless is to try to comfort yourself with false assurances. It may be that if you have not repented and turned to faith in Jesus Christ to submit to Him as your King and as your Savior, that the very best thing that He could do for you is to lead you to a dead-end street where you are miserable so that you will be desperate for Him to do what you cannot do for yourself. Christians, Christians, 
please, oh please, if you have the opportunity to speak with someone who is being confronted with a dead-end life that ends in death because nothing that they do can deliver or save, nothing they can do is satisfy, do not try to give them false assurance. Don't give them empty hope. Give them Jesus. Because he's the only one that is able to save and able to deliver. It may be that in God's grace and mercy, he has allowed your neighbor or your co-worker or your family member or even your son or your grandchild, your spouse, it may be that God has brought them to the end of themselves so that they can know that salvation is from the Lord. Encourage them, plead with them to call out to him Because those who call on the name of the Lord with a sincere faith, with true repentance, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then number three. The Lord's salvation calls for devotion and trust. At the end of chapter 14, the last two verses... Starting at 1430, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. By the way, when in this account does Israel believe? Right. After God has worked. It is unbelievable how gracious and good God is that to people who have seen him work in Egypt through the plagues, they have already seen evidence of God's presence in Egypt through miraculous displays of power. They run into their first conflict, albeit a significant one. I'm not saying I would fare any better. But they run into their first conflict as they're making their way out of Egypt, and all it takes is a threat from the Egyptians to say, we should have stayed slaves. Why doesn't God say, fine, have it your way. You don't want to trust me? I don't want to save you. Is that what God does? Or does God hear the people speaking out of what lies in their hearts, the fact that they don't trust, the fact that they fear, the fact that what they see is not, first and foremost, the presence of God in their midst, but they see the threat from the lesser enemy that in their minds they have made to be a greater enemy. 
God hears them saying, we were better off before God brought us out. And yet God being rich in mercy and in grace saves them anyway. And when we get to the end of the chapter, one of the conclusions that we ought to draw is that anyone who is able to see and experience God's salvation for themselves, this is the proper response. The proper response is not to say, thank you God for getting me out of that jam, or thank you God for forgiving me of my sins and delivering me into a new life. I'll take it from here. That's not how it works. Salvation is whole and total and complete. He leads us out to lead us in. And all the while that he is leading us out and in, he is calling for us to place our devotion and our trust in him because he shows himself over and over to be more than trustworthy. Paul says it best in Romans 8. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with the gift of his son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The salvation that God works for his people, he works so that their hearts will be turned to him. And as a little foreshadow of what's to come let me just simply say this one of the tragedies of the book of exodus and so much of the record of the wilderness wandering is a very hard lesson that comes through the example of old testament israel which is this that salvation entails not just a setting free or a deliverance from the enemy but salvation must also include a deliverance from our own weak and corrupt hearts. Because to try to claim one part of God's work of salvation and to ignore the rest is not to get any of it. My prayer for Edgewood in a passage like this, my prayer for myself, right? I, this is one of those, we'll end here. This is one of those passages where you say, when you begin to think and look at application, right? You, let me not say you, I am. I am fearful to pray along these lines because I am so weak. I know that God will lead me from beginning to end. I know that he will do it because he is good and he will do it for his glory. But oh, how I fear the pain and the discomfort that sometimes must come in order for me to get the ultimate good in God's glory. And so if you're anything like me, my encouragement to you would be to make the prayer that that man in the Gospels makes. I believe, help my unbelief.
Help us, Father, to call upon you in our day of trouble, in our time of need, so that you will rescue us and we, as the rescued, will honor you. Let's pray. Lord, every hour we need you. The truth of the matter is, is that even when we think we are walking on our own, we are still walking in your power and with your direction and your guidance. As your children, you remain a faithful father. You order our steps even when we are unaware of it. But Father, we ask that you would give us the privilege of being uh, sensitive to the work of your spirit in our midst, in our individual hearts and minds even. So that as we go day by day seeking to follow Christ, that we would be very aware of the fact that none of us could have been delivered from our slavery to sin, and none of us will find our way home unless it is guaranteed by your presence that goes before us. Thank you, Father, that you remain patient with us, even when we fear and even when we doubt. Thank you that you remain merciful and gracious, even when we are tempted to believe that the life that the world offers is better than the life that you offer because of the risks that may be involved. Bring us safely home with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And in Psalm 46.10, David proclaims, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. Let's be still and know that he is God and stand and close with Behold Him. Before there was light Walked across the pages of time He who made every living thing Behold Him He who heard humanity's cry Left His throne to wake as a child he became like the least of us, behold him, Jesus, Son of God, Say
Colossians 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You're dismissed. Be, be sure to fellowship with one another as you leave. Thank you.